This past summer, Kevin and I had the privilege, the blessing, the amazing opportunity to be a part of the National Education Association's Justice Summer Camp. Our partnership with NEA on the issue of educational justice has been a thrilling two-year experience, and we must thank the amazing Shilpa, Stephanie, and the rest of the NEA staff for coordinating for us and connecting us to dope educators, thinkers, and artists who are out here doing this work that gives us so much life and breath. And when we learned that we had been selected to interview Dr. Bettina L. Love, author of We Want to Do More Than Just Survive, and hip-hop's little sister speak, negotiating hip-hop identities, we about lost our minds. Her revolutionary work around abolitionist pedagogy has represented a tipping point for us in the last year, easy for me to say, especially with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, and her work has guided us in this turbulent school year. When Dr. Love addressed the topic of school's role in the spirit murder of black and brown children, Kevin responded with a call for us as teachers to be spirit healers, eliciting a cheer from Dr. Love. Pretty sure that's a high point of his life and my life and all of our lives at this point. That has remained our call as we have navigated this year, and we are so grateful to Dr. Love for her work and spiritual guidance and her hip-hop top five. If you would like to support our work in remixing this conversation about race, power, and education, please consider becoming a member of the Two Dope Nation on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you get extra access, advance notice of coming projects and episodes, and a community of people who value this work we do together. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash twodopeteachers. And now... Please enjoy an encore presentation of Summer Revolution Mixtape 2020 Track 3, Dr. Bettina L. Love and Abolitionist Teaching. Stay dope, y'all. Hey, Two Dope Nation, what's crackalating? What's crackalating? Crackalating. You know what? I, I'd love to start off my class like, uh, what's shaking? Potato chips and bacon. And the kids oh. just look at me like, what? And they're like, they're like, um, is this gonna, what? They're like, uh, we're having bacon? <laughs> yeah, and, 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 the, and the fellas are like, we love bacon. We and, love you it. know. And, and the, there's and always the, the one kid who's like, I love you, Mr. Adams. <laughs> yep. But, but in middle school, I feel like they're all saying that inside their heads. Like, they're not saying it out loud because they don't want anybody to, like, judge them or look at them. Right? That's what I tell myself <laughs> all the time. I'm like, they love me. They're just not they saying do. it. They just ain't they, saying it. They just ain't, they just ain't saying it. it. Yep. Hey, Two Dope Teachers and a mic is back. We have got for you track three in the 2020 Summer Revolutionary Mixtape. Um, Kevin's going to tell us a little about, about this incredible guest um, that was so generous with their time with us and shared with us their thoughts. But we want to talk a little bit about what we're doing this summer. If you have not been following us, uh, first of all, check us out. Um, we are on all kinds of platforms. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. 
Um, and uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Um, so why a mixtape? Why is this just not a continuation of the season? Well, as you may know, uh, Kevin and I uh, were we owe a lot of our identity and our sense of creativity and passion and joy and anger and everything that we feel to our relationship to hip hop. Um, and so there's a couple of different mixtapes that uh, you may be thinking of. Uh, you may prefer to think of it as the mixtape that was made for it. You good over there? You cool? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. We'll make Don't it. get that Rona. Don't get that Rona. I was trying to, I was trying to press the cough button, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> you mean the mute button? Cause I think yeah. you did press the cough button. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it gets silly in the summer, y'all. It gets silly. <laughs> um, so uh, there's the one kind of mixtape that, you know, when you found that special someone, you're like, man, you know how I'm going to show them that love? I'm going to woo them. I'm going to make a tape with all kinds of love songs on it. And I'm going to give it to them. And sometimes they responded with, this is beautiful. And sometimes they responded with, who are you? Um, These songs but, are weird. These songs are weird. What? You like fish? I don't even understand. Um, <laughs> you try to put me out there? So, like, to... I didn't say you. You just put yourself out there. I don't know, man. Like, you should you should own the things that you love, right? That's uh, right. Hey, that's right. We're all complex. We're all complex. Hey, speaking of which, um, you're going to have to defend this, tw this tweet if it ever finds its way back to you. Uh, Charlie Daniels died uh, a oh, couple days oh, ago. Oh, no. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so... Do you know that I know all the words to The Devil Went Down to Georgia? I did not know that, but uh, for some reason it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I mean, my, my Mexican immigrant father was obsessed with the Urban Cowboy movie when it came out. And so we he like – and, you know, this was before we had like cable and you could just watch these movies all the time on TNT. My dad would go – to the video store and rent it and then put it on and make me watch it and talk about how good of a dancer John Travolta was. And, um, and so, yeah, so I know the devil went down to Charlie Daniels at bars. I'm just going to put it out. There right now. <laughs> See, um, I, I, I grew up, you know, cause I grew up in Georgia. So you, you could grow up in Georgia and not hear that song. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like I always, I was like, it was an interesting song. You know, the musician in me loved the, 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 the fiddle solo. The yes. fiddle, not a violin, he's playing a fiddle. He's playing a fiddle. But, uh, you know, but uh, but then Charlie Daniels, you know, like, he'd be up on Fox News with him. I mean, <laughs> I mean, not anymore, but yeah, you're right. Not, you're not right. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was in poor taste on my part. I apologize. <laughs> I'm going to have to confess a little bit there. How did we get here? Oh, yeah, so there's that kind of mixtape. Um, there's that kind of mixtape. Uh, and you can prefer to see it that way if you didn't grow up with hip-hop. Um, that this is our mixtape showing our love for Two Dope Nation, some tracks that we think that you're really going to enjoy and uh, and that they'll get you kind of deep. But really, the kind of mixtape we're talking about is the one that comes out of hip-hop. Um, mixtapes, historically, were A, the only way that hip-hop got out to the people um, because stores wouldn't carry it, TV wouldn't play it, um, and it was just weird. And especially if you listen to NWA, you'd be like, what is wrong with these men? Um, and you know, so the only way you could get hip hop was, was through a mixtape, but it's also a way that rising artists will, will kind of get their work out there and get some, get some feelers out there and, you know, sort of give a little bit of a tease of some of the deeper themes that may await them if they decide the audience, if they decide to, uh, invest their money in the music. So what we are putting together is a few tracks, um, with sh some samplings of some incredible work that people are doing 
all over this country. So you you may have heard uh, track one, which uh, featured uh, Denver School Board member Tay Anderson, the youngest elected African-American official in the state of Colorado currently, uh, who talked yes. a little bit about ever. how politics is changing. Ever. Oh, ever. Is that ever? Right? ever. Did we, did we verify so. that? Yeah, I, I think, think so. I think he's the. I think, he's no, the I think you're right. I think you're right. And he was salty about the 19 year old mayor. He's like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a 19 year old mayor. There's a 19 year old mayor. There's probably like 12 people living there now. Now everybody's going to tweet at us. They're going to get mad. Um, like, no, he was in a city of 1,500 people. 1,500 people, and you're showing your. Take one, the city of Denver. It doesn't show, count. Exactly. You're 1,500 people is doesn't even fit grades That's nine nothing. to 12 That's at nothing. East High School. There's nothing. Nothing. East High, East High School kicks more than the, more than fifteen hundred kids out every. Oh, my Ooh, bad, my bad. Oh, uh, no, we love you, East. We do. Although I'm a manual thunderbolt, and so the love is limited. Um, so uh, we have an amazing guest, and what we are hoping that you will do is that you will listen to this mixtape, tell us how you like it, um, and consume more of the uh, of the work that's being done by this guest. Who is this guest we speak of? This sister is so amazing, powerful, intelligent. Um, just, I love hearing her speak because I, I just feel like, you know, you're talking with a griot, you know? So, like, you're getting that, that knowledge. Dr. Bettina Love. Dr. Bettina Love. Who we have this episode. And she is an award winning author. She is an athletic association endowed professor at the University of Georgia. So you know, like she got a special place in my heart. Um, she is an esteemed researcher, an incredible writer, an activist, an abolitionist. She is a sought after public speaker. And she is talked on all sorts of topics from abolitionist teaching to anti-racism, hip hop and education, black girlhood, queer youth, hip hop, feminism, art based education. Y'all already, know. already um, know. She is the author of the books. We want to do more than survive abolitionist teaching and the pursuit of educational freedom and hip hop's little sisters speak negotiating oh, yeah. hip hop identities. And politics in the New South. Yeah. Yo, she is just launched the Abolitionist Teaching Teacher Network. She is dope. Dr. Bettina L. Love, y'all. Stay tuned. This episode is straight fire. That's right. We hope you enjoy it, and we hope it gives you a lot to think about and talk about. We'll catch you on the other side. Peace. All right, everybody. Guess who we have here? Well, Kevin knows who we have here. I know. We, I don't have to guess. You don't have to guess. Um, <laughs> we could, we could, um, we could put clues out and say wrote a dope book. Wrote no, dope book. not yet. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, uh, but because this is an, an interactive uh, show at this point, um, it gives us incredible pleasure, and we're just so honored. Uh, to welcome onto our our Revolution Summer 2020 mixtape, um, Dr. Bettina L. Love. Um, and if there was a live audience, they'd be applauding. Woo! That's right. That's Crazy. right. <laughs> honored. Honored. Thank you both for having me. I appreciate it. We, uh, we uh, are honored to have you. 
the honor is all ours. So we had the opportunity to uh, to mo to moderate a conversation with you um, through the NEA Racial and Social Justice uh, Conference. And for those of you who um, missed the boat on this uh, on this talk that Dr. Love gave at at NEA's conference, you really missed out. Uh, but you can still sign up for the conference, and there are lots of ways that you can absorb the wisdom and the energy. Uh, that she and the Abolitionist Teaching Network are putting out there. Um, but that was one of the most fun conversations we've had in a really long time. And it, oh, went, <laughs> it was so much fun. And then just to be able to reach out to you and say, hey, could you could you be on our mixtape? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> and we're like, yeah. And it was just like a beautiful thing. So thank you so much for being here with us today. No, thank you for what you two do. This is awesome. This is a dope venue to be able to speak at. Thank you. Yeah, this is great. Um, so we um, just so many things that uh, we want to kind of get into here. Um, but you know, a big focus of uh, the two dope teachers and a mic uh, podcast is how we elevate and amplify the stories of teachers of color um, mm. and the things that we kind of experience. So, um, could you take a moment and just take us through um, your journey from public school teacher to um, to published acknowledged expert in the field of education <laughs> um, you know acknowledged by like everybody who like you're one of those names that when you bring it up to teachers who really follow social justice um very familiar so what what has your path been as a teacher of color you know my my path has been just a very fortunate path of um somebody just taking advantage of things falling in my lap so let me let me kind of tell you what I mean by that. I went to college on a basketball scholarship. Um, I wasn't a studious student. I didn't take school seriously. I was, <laughs> for all intents purposes, a jock. Um, I thought I was going to the NBA. I was like, forget the WNBA. I'm going to That's right. There you go. And brash and thought that basketball was my everything. And I went to college. Uh, I went to Old Dominion University, um, and at that time, they were the number two school in the country. They had just lost to, I think, Tennessee in the national championship the year before. So I was hyped. You know, I was a kid yeah. from upstate New York going down to Virginia to play in, to play one of the best teams in the country. Yep. And I get there, and I was like, I didn't know how skinny I was until I got there. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, God. <laughs> You're starting to get moved around a little bit. <laughs> I bounced around, but I was figuring out my way. And um, what happened was by my freshman year, I was like, you know, basketball, this is pretty cool. But, you know, I really, it, it humbled me to, to realize I wasn't going pro. Like, I was like, wow, this is, this is, this is the big leagues and I can score, but I couldn't play defense. I couldn't rebound, but I can score. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. I, I was like, give me the ball. I'm going to score. And I play defense. Oh, I mean, I, I mean, the game, the game is buckets, right? Like the game is buckets. I started saying, you know what? I, I probably should probably take school seriously. <laughs> and I started looking at my classes and I realized that I was in a class with all the black male athletes and I was the only female women, woman athlete in the classes. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, I wonder where everybody's at. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I started asking questions of my other teammates, like, what classes are you taking? Mm. Oh, you know, chemistry, biology, you know, pre-algebra. I'm like, oh, I'm taking um, indoor recreation, 
and uh-huh. outdoor recreation. I'm taking uh-huh. first aid, first aid a full semester. There's only so many ways you can do a tourniquet. <laughs> For a full semester of first aid. At some level, it, it should become like second aid and third aid and fourth right. aid, right? <laughs> so I'm trying to figure this thing out. Like, why am I in the class? And so I realized, like, I'm in the, I'm in the, not all, I'm in the job class. So I said, okay. So I go to my academic advisors, and they told me straight up to my face, "You're an inner city kid." You went to a tough inner city school mm-hmm. and um, you can't change your major. <laughs> I was like, damn. I mean, I mean, that, I mean, they, based, I mean, they did not, um, they did not mince words at all. It's like, no. <laughs> and so at that point I, I knew that I had to leave. And so I called my athletic advisor um, from high school. She's like, like my mom. She pretty much is my adopted mom. She raised me. Her name is Mrs. Knight, a white lady from Indiana, moved to Rochester, New York with her husband, and she just took care of of kids. And I called her, and um, she said, well, you know, we'll get you out of there. But before that, she said, well, you know, Bettina, I want to come up and see. And so she came up to Virginia. She came down to Virginia, and she said, oh, it's time to go. I got to get you out of there. And so I go and transfer to the University of Pittsburgh. University of Pittsburgh is the best decision I probably made in my life. Uh-huh, I get yeah. there, the University of Pittsburgh basketball coach says, you know what, you're a student athlete. And I mean that. We had eight hours of study hall. And if you miss Man. a minute, you had to run a mile and it was cumulative. Oh. <laughs> so let's say everybody, let's say eight people on the team missed their study hall hours by a minute. You got eight miles to run. So we all did about nine or 10 hours. We ain't want no trouble. Yeah. And so I just started to excel in college. I started reading every book. I started getting A's and I was like, wow, I can do this. (laughs) And so I graduated on time. I graduated in four years, but I had another year to play basketball. And so my coach says, well, you should get your master's. I said, okay. (laughs) I knew I was really good with kids and and I, I wanted to... Uh, be a basketball coach or a teacher. So I get my master's in elementary education. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that I get hooked up with two professors and one is still a professor I'm in contact right now with. His name is uh, Doug Hartman. And he said, um, I would go into his office and I would read. He would give me stuff to read. I would come back. I would talk about it. Or he would give me something to read and I would write about it. And then he said, at the end of my, at the end of my time, he said, you know, you should be a professor. I was like, huh? He was like, yeah, you should be a professor. I said, well, what do I got to do? <laughs> Write and talk to I'm like, really? <laughs> the way you put things together, the way you write, the way you read stuff and then able to critique it, I think that you should be a professor. I was like, okay. And I just kept that in the back of my mind. I graduated, started teaching in Pittsburgh. Then my uh, girlfriend at that time, which is now my wife, was teaching in Miami. So I went down to Miami. I taught with her, um, which was an amazing experience. Taught me so much and challenged me so much about my ideas of justice. Yeah. Um, when you get to Miami, that's a whole nother place. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, then I you know, got into a PhD program, left teaching, got into a PhD program in Atlanta. And... Um, the rest is really history. You know, I've just been really trying to write in a way in which that I know folk like me 
want to hear. Like, I'm not trying to use big words. I'm not trying to show off that I got a PhD. What I'm trying to do is write the way my grandma can read, hmm. the way my auntie want to hear, want to hear it said. Um, I think that's, you know, the gift is to try to take something that's a big issue and make it plain. Don't, don't beat around the bush, say it. Yeah. You know, and I talk about it in the book, you know, I was raised with a mother that said, you give them hell. Um, and so I just, you know, try to write in a way in which and try to research and talk in a way in which that's relatable to people because, you know, I'm a college professor. That's like, you're a nerd. Stop. Yep. So I, yeah. Yep. yeah, yeah, exactly. As relatable and as thoughtful as I possibly can because, you know, that, that racism that I experienced, um, I did everything right. You know, I was, I was a kid who played basketball. I got decent grades in school. Mm-hmm. I went to college. I got a scholarship. And just because of the color of my skin and where I was from, they yeah. had said, no, you can't, you can't, you can't major in anything hard to here to play basketball. Yep. And that was really the turning point in my life. Um, that really got me thinking about what, what happened to me, what was done to me and why did that happen? Yeah. It's just so amazing to me to think of like you as a person who was not good at school and, you know, it, it's just hard for me to think of that, you know, to imagine that because you know, I devoured, we want to do more than survive. And by the way, for those of you who have been living in a cave, um, the, uh, the book, the book is called, we want to do more than survive abolitionist teaching in the pursuit of educational freedom by Dr. Bettina Love. Um, I read that book in like two sittings and I'm dyslexic. (laughs) So, and, and it's so laden with incredible research and evidence. And it just like, it just comes at you with this wonderful, like intellectual intensity that to think of you as somebody who wasn't, who did not see themselves as an intellectual, like from day one, just blows me away. So thank you for sharing that story. (laughs) You know, it's, yeah, I I wasn't, you know, I wasn't pushed academically. You know, I was, I was able to move through education um, with the lowest expectations that teachers have. You know, I, 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 I just relate, like when you say, you know, starting at one school and then moving to another and finding your that perfect fit, because that was kind of my experience. You know, um, I wasn't an athlete, but I, I was trying to be a musician and ended up at the University of Northern Carol- uh, of Colorado, and um, and uh, did it, it didn't work. It wasn't the same. It didn't feel the same as what <laughs> I wanted to do with music. And then I ended up back at uh, Metro State College in Denver. And, and I, and, and something happened and it clicked for me. And I had these moments where, where I, I kind of had that self-actualization, you know, where I I saw myself as a scholar and as a thoughtful person. And, uh, you know, I had those same experiences where I I started to think about issues of social justice and racial consciousness and it it just grew. And um, I just wonder, you know, can you talk about why you think it's really important for students to really develop that sense of consciousness and for teachers to really create spaces and what teachers can do to kind of help to create the spaces where that can happen faster for kids, you know, and maybe what prevented it from happening from you earlier in life? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the big things is that we're at this moment right now where the country is talking about, anti-racist education, anti-racist education. I think that's wonderful. But I think we have to take a step back and say, number one, anti-racist education has to be in white schools. They need it the most. Yeah. 
Um, it has to be, you know, we have to think about what white folks are taught. And so when you, you know, one thing that white supremacy and whiteness does, it erases black people from history. So you don't see us in textbooks. Yep. You don't see us in conversations about who created this country. You don't see us in conversations about democracy. You see us in conversations that say we just took all the time and we made no contribution. And so and that's why, you know, when you you start to learn who you are as a person of color, you start to see how amazing your history is. You start to see that that, that you and the people who look like you have made significant contribution to this country. This country wouldn't be what it is without us. And when you learn that history, you are empowered. There's no turning back. Period. And so, you know, and then it's also important for white people to say, oh, oh, they have, oh, 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 no. <laughs> I hear, you know, white people say all the time is I didn't know. And, you, and they have to ask themselves, why didn't you know? Yeah. Right? Because what, what happens is the longer you don't know, the more the stereotypes and the myths about me get to stay. Yep. And so that's why this type of education is so important because it's to break down those walls so white folks can say, oh, shoot, these people have contributed to society or led in society. Oh, they have. Oh, they did create a country. Yeah. Oh, they did. They were enslaved. So how can we call them lazy when they created a country for free? Exactly. Or how can you say black people don't vote? How, can, how do you say that? Think about what we have done to vote. Yep. And so it helps white folks to see the real world. And what has happened is see black folks' humanity, our full humanity. We are not perfect, but we are not what you think we are. And it also is important for what for black folks to see the beauty of who they are, the history of who they are, and the contributions that we have made to society beyond, you know, I always joke that we go from slavery like we had no history before slavery. And then there's <laughs> You know, there's a civil war. There's yeah, a yep. civil war. You know, there's this lady called Rosa Parks. Yep. And then there's Obama. Like, that's really yeah. how they do our history. And maybe a little bit of Harriet and Frederick sprinkled about. Yeah. But the true story of who we are and our understanding is why this moment is so important. It's number one, to tell our full story. So don't just tell our pain. Tell our full story. Tell us who we are. Yeah. So I'm looking at you know, on the inside cover of We Want to Do More Than Survive, um, publication date 2019. Is that right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> Man. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, you know, you mentioned how there's been this sudden clamoring for uh, anti-racist teaching and anti-racist professional development and allyship and, you know, those kinds of things. And on the one hand, it's very cool, as you kind of alluded to, that these things, it, it sounds like they've been a focus for you for a very long time. Um, these these <laughs> things are becoming uh, centered in a lot of our educational discourse. In general, what do you make of this movement, of uh, this sudden kind of movement to get this material and get this information that's happening in education? Well, I, I think it's important, but I think we have to take a step back. Um, yeah. I think anti-racist education, I think abolitionist teaching, I think all of these things at face value are very important and could be something that changes the course um, for black and brown students. However, if folks in the classroom don't think deeply about who they are, 
their ideas around race, their ideas around gender, their ideas around trans people, their ideas around class, and they don't interrogate that and think deeply about that, then you can put whatever curriculum you want in front of folks. It, can, it still can be damaging. Yeah. If you have not done the work to understand why. And we have to say, why does it take the killing of black and brown people to want this? Yeah. You know, and, and, and that that that's something I'm thinking about a lot right now, Dr. Love, is is okay, th- this is very popular right now, right? And in the summer when black and brown bodies are not in front of yeah. uh, you know, these teachers right now, a majority of which are are white women uh, who don't relate to the students, who very well could, you know, be considered these Karens. Um, what happens when they come back? And there isn't this moment we've passed on, you know, there hasn't been a a publicized murder of a black person mm-hmm. in the media. You know, how do we make sure that uh, we continue to push on these uh, Karens, you know, to make sure? Because I, I think what me and Gerardo have seen consistently is in a lot of the schools that we've worked in is sometimes these, quote unquote, well-intentioned women. Mm-hmm. And and men are sometimes harming our kids. So, like, how do we make sure that we we keep the fire going and keep the emphasis on it, and and really make sure that we're having these honest conversations when the school year starts back and our kids start to, um, you know, demonstrate the trauma that's resulted from the past eight months of their mm-hmm. lives. Yeah, um, I think one of the, the critical things that we have to do right now is not let up, think very deeply about what we're asking for, and we cannot get caught up in low-hanging fruit. And so what I mean by low-hanging fruit is that they keep giving us stuff we didn't ask for. (laughs) So we asked for the NFL to now sing the National Black Anthem. I don't even know where that came from. (laughs) (laughs) We are not asking for people to put Black Lives Matter in streets that's really nice, but that's not what we asked for. And so we have to make sure that we don't get caught up in the symbolism of the easiest stuff to fix and think that that is the job that's being done. And so we need to make sure that we're asking and demanding systematic changes and not seeing these symbolic changes as real change. That's such an important point. You know, it, it reminds me of a, of a meme that's going around right now where it's like, you're, you're, you're dismantling statues. We want you to, dis- to dismantle systems. And I think that's right. uh, such a, such a critical point. And it, and it, it, you know, in a way it's kind of like, it's kind of like what y- y'all just missed everything we just said. And, <laughs> and you pulled down a statue that real talk was not that hard of a statue to pull down because they were all cheaply manufactured as ways of right. countering the civil rights movement. I mean, it's like, it's like, okay, so you pulled down a hollow aluminum statue. That's cool. Uh, but what That's about cool. your interactions with real black and brown children? It, it's such an important thing. Um, so yeah. I've been, I like, uh, I've been following you all over the place. Like every like webinar yeah. you've done the last few, few weeks I've been at. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, in, in one that you did, um, the one that we referenced earlier before the conversation started with uh, with professors Goldie Muhammad, Dina Simmons, um, you you cited Robin D. G. Kelly's um, 
you know, sort of call to live every day like victory is around the corner. Can you expand on what what that looks like for um, educators and for those of us who would be part of an anti-racist movement? Yeah, so, you know, the work of Robin D. D. Kelly is so important to the work of freedom. He is one of the most prominent thinkers and writers around ideas of justice and freedom and liberation, not just for Black people, but for all people. Mm-hmm. And what he talks about is this idea of freedom dreams and the idea that, you know, we just, we, we're not just coming up with these whimsical, idealistic things that we want. They're deeply rooted in understanding systems of oppression. Yeah. They're deeply rooted in understanding how this world works and how when we take one step forward, there are people who want to take two, to take that one step away and another two. But what he says is that when you freedom dream, you know, you get in solidarity with folks. And it's a hard fight to get in solidarity. It's not easy to get in solidarity. But we are dreaming about what is possible because we understand what has been done to us. Yeah. And so we are trying to say that we can undo this by a, a real critique of what has happened. And then we don't, you know, as, as William Ayer says, you know, we don't ask, we're demanding what they say is impossible. Yeah. So when they say well, we could never do that, that's exactly what we want. Yeah. What you say we could never do is exactly what we want. And I think it's important that we talk about the time that we're in right now is with, with, you know, COVID. Yeah. You know, we saw school districts for the longest say, you know, we, we can't do away with standardized testing. And boom. <laughs> it was gone. And then the kid and now we're done with standardized testing. Okay. And we're going to start the next school year and everybody's going to operate. And it's, it's right. going to work. Yeah. Right. It's, just, it's amazing to me. Or, you know, we can't give kids laptops. And then he started giving out laptops like hotcakes. <laughs> That's right. Sure and it's kind of like, you mean to tell me you could give laptops? <laughs> you know? All the time. You can know these things cannot leave the building. No, I thought I thought they couldn't work outside of the – I thought there was something right. about the network that wouldn't allow them to work if they took them. The, uh, yeah. They showed up. Right. That was a lie. The law detective said that was a lie, Maury. Oh, we got a Maury Povich moment right here. Maury Povich right right here. I mean, that's incredible. You know, teachers, we, you know, teachers are the most important. They give us all that language, but we have no autonomy. Oh, COVID-19 hits. Now we have all the autonomy in the world. Now you need teachers to be creative, to think outside the box. Oh, oh, right now. Parents. Yeah. That, that's such, an, that's such an important. Yep. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, they just they play their hand yeah. and showing them you know, all the things that we've been saying couldn't be done, and we have to ask, why did it take a pandemic for you to see our humanity? Yeah. That that Pete that statement and 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 I've heard you make it in a few different contexts that they played their hand. It keeps echoing in my mind. It's kind of like, okay, so now everything that you say is not possible to be done for human beings or for young people in schools or for the people who are attempting to serve young people in schools. Everything you said we couldn't do, we can do. And I had never thought about that whole piece about how, you know, over the course of my entire 21 year teaching career, it's like standards, standards, standards. What are you doing about the standards? Let's dig into the standards. Let's unpack the standards. You know, and let's let let's you know let's really have a standards based blah blah blah. Um, and now it's like we'll be creative, 
Like, <laughs> and, and you know, I think, and I think we have like well intent, like the leadership at our school, um, you know, not perfect, but they were, they, they did a really good job of kind of trying to reassure everybody through this whole thing, you know, but for them to say, I mean, try some stuff and it's fine. It's kind of right. like, man, how many teaching careers would you have saved if you, <laughs> if, you if you had, if yeah. you had said, Hey, you know what? Try some stuff because you know, uh, half of what you're going to do is like really bad. And that's if you're a really good teacher and the other half will be really good. And so strive for the good and try not to repeat the bad. It, it's just a go. really interesting thing. Um, so, so the thing that grabbed my attention about your work initially, um, was it, you know, I've been teaching for 21 years and I think in our conversation last week, something I alluded to was that I saw a lot of the same dynamics that, that you name in um, as you open your book, that there is a degree to which that we are not able to give the love to our students and communities that they need and deserve, um, that we dehumanize them as classroom teachers. There are all these problems in the system. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm just now coming to this realization that so much of it, it it's almost like none of this is a is a bug of the system. It's actually a function of the system um, that it, it doesn't work. Um, and so when I saw the subtitle of abolitionist teaching, um, it really ignited something in me that really what we need to be working towards is, is how we dismantle um, schooling yeah. as it is. Um, can you talk a little bit about it just, you know, people need to read the book. So don't feel like you have to like give all the content here, but <laughs> people got to read, go read, go read the book, buy the book, read the book. Um, but t talk a little bit about what abolition, abolitionist teaching is and what an abolitionist, abolitionist mindset, man, it's hard to talk. Um, it's 97 degrees in Denver. So it's like Ooh. a little rough right here. <laughs> um, but, uh, what, what does abolitionist teaching look like? And what does an abolitionist mindset towards education look like? Yeah, so, you know, the the idea comes from two places. Number one, I was born and raised in upstate New York. I'm from Rochester, New York, you know, home of Anna Murray Douglas, home of Frederick Douglass, just a few miles away, Harriet Tubman's farm. Um, so, you know, I grew up with stories, Rochester, New York, being a critical stop on the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with stories and hearing about, you know, where I grew up and, and the wonderful people that lived there. And so I wanted to really talk about what abolition is. I think we have been hearing abolish the police, abolish ICE, and I think that's right. But what does it mean to be an abolitionist? They were strategic. They were thoughtful. Um, they were methodical. They didn't walk in and just turn the tables up. They were, they were thinkers. And then the next piece really comes from the work of folks like um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Angela Davis and David Stovall, Erica Miner. Um, folks who really thought about, you know, prison abolition and what that means, the idea that, you know, we are going to not just try to say we don't want prisons in this country. Yes, but more importantly, we want to undo the conditions that make prisons possible. Mm -hmm. And that's really what abolitionist teaching is trying to say is that, you know, you talk to people all the time and they say, well, you know, the system isn't broken. It's working exactly the way it's supposed to work. OK, so <laughs> why are we in the game anymore? Exactly. Exactly. Why, why do we think you can reform this? Yeah. Why do you think you can reform something that was never meant for you to succeed at? Hmm. And so abolition teaching is saying, uh, we want to dismantle this thing. We want to destroy this thing. This thing that doesn't love us, that doesn't care for us, that doesn't nurture us. We are tired. 
of giving our children to this monster to be eaten. And so what abolitionist teaching is trying to say is to, you know, to provide language, to say it's okay to say we want to be treated as human. It's okay. <laughs> it's a radical baby. view. It's a radical right. view. <laughs> and that's what abolition is to say, you know, this this thing that was set up, it wasn't set up fairly, and we want to, we want to, we want to, we want to, we want, we don't just want to change the rules of the game. We want to start the game over and make the rules fair and equitable for everyone, and we want to acknowledge what has happened to us, so it could be equitable, not just fair, equitable. So I mean, you gotta pay up a little. you're so right about that, and and uh, and you know the the research, as I said in um in your book, is so profound and so well done. Like like there's like I don't know how somebody could read that book and come to any other conclusion. Um, and even a cursory view of public education and every effort to make education available to everybody um, was laden with racist tendencies, whether you're talking about um, the xenophobic reason to create kindergarten so that Irish children could go home and teach their, their parents hygiene, or whether it was the um, residential schools that um, American Indian people were forced into. Yeah. All of these had specific purposes. And then what ends up happening is we start celebrating the ones that survived the oppression that was created in front of them mm -hmm. and dismissing um, the loss of life and the loss of, of humanity that happened for pretty much everybody else. So it's a powerful thing, powerful idea. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the things I wanted to use for my own self in the book is, you know, how because I could put a basketball through a hoop, I was able to go to college. I was able yeah. to have these experiences. And that was truly because I could put a ball through a hoop. And now, you know, people say, oh, look at you, look, you did this, you did that. And I'm like, yeah, because I could put a ball through a hoop. There were many, many, many uh, folks that were smarter than me, that were better writers than me, that had better grades than me. <laughs> and they didn't get the opportunities that I had only because I could put a ball through a hoop. So it's about what we value as, as a society, you know, and I had to work that out in therapy. <sighs> You know, I, I, I mean, I think it's so important to think about this idea of um, abolitionist versus reformer, you know, and I think, you know, what you just stated um, and what you've said in your book and, and your talks um, about the difference, you know, this is a system that is oppressive in its nature. And I think that was always my, like, I always was uneasy when I'd go to these meetings and we'd talk about school reform or what could we do you know, to better meet the needs of students. And I felt like we were never really addressing mm -hmm. the clear issue, right? And it's it's like, our kids aren't succeeding. The kids that look like me aren't succeeding because you don't love and care about them. Right. It's the same thing that I went through where you didn't challenge me. You, did, you didn't support me. You didn't think that my parents cared about my education yeah. because maybe I wasn't always engaged like I should have been. You didn't understand that actually... I loved history and social studies and I have been talking about Dr. King and I have been to Ebenezer Baptist church since the time I can remember, you know? And so I had this stuff, you know, I, my parents had taught me about the Klan and about, you know, civil rights activists in my city, Atlanta. And, and that was never something that you were allowing to me to let shine. And so I really think this idea of abolition, and I think it's where people get scared. They're like, well, what if this thing goes away? Well, we're done with this thing. This thing <laughs> did not work. It did not achieve what we're trying to accomplish. Period. So let's create something new. And and um, 
when we were talking, when I was listening to your talk um, last week, the NEA kickoff talk, I thought about the ancestors, you know, and the abolitionist, uh, the earliest abolitionist. And if you ask them what the world looked like after their work was done, they would have told you, we don't know. We don't know what it looks like, right? We have a vision, but we can't nail it all the way down. And so I think we have to really, I think it's important for us to embrace this idea of that we're working for that future, like you said, that we might not live to see. Right. But we know we got to get there. We That's know right. what it is. We know that the schools as they exist today are not meeting our kids' needs. Um, and so we know we have parts that we have to dismantle and take apart. So like with that mindset, I'd ask you, Dr. Love, if you had a magic wand and this magic wand can do two things, <laughs> it, it can, it can erase one policy that you feel like is systematically oppression because we know like policies are the roots of systems. Right. And I think this is the hard work of getting rid of these policies. How can we really change the policies? So one that you the you can use the wand to get rid of a policy, but you can also use it to institute a new policy. What mm. would those what would you what would you get rid of? And what would you institute? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I, I think the one thing that I would use the wand to get rid of first and foremost is standards and curriculum that doesn't value, doesn't put the history. Um, that doesn't show the contributions of black and brown people and doesn't make the connections that we have as people. And the first thing I would use the wand to create rich, meaningful curriculum um, that shows all kids the contributions of black and brown people. And uh, I would use the wand one more time to put counselors and therapists and healers in schools. Ooh, talk about it. Yeah. But, you know, as, as I use the wand, you know, I, you know, I'm like a little kid. I'm using the wand to get more wishes. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yep. The biggest thing for me is, is regardless, you know, of, of all of that, of standardized testing, of, of that has to go, you know, curriculum that has to be reflective, all of that. You know, I think that all that's important, but I would use the wand more than anything is to create schools that that function as communities. Yeah. Where yeah. the school is the heart and soul of the community and the community still loved on and the, and the community feels like they're a part of the school and the school provides the resources for the community to flourish. You know, so to have that, so, because if you have a community that is strong, that is flourishing, then they'll get, they'll get standardized testing out of, out of the school. They'll get right. out of the schools. They'll get that, that are not, that are not helpful and that are harmful of students. They'll get them out of the school and they'll make, they'll push for better curriculum. Right. So it's about having flourishing and thoughtful and creative and beautiful and loving communities. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, making sure people have jobs that pay them a living wage. Making sure people have health care. Like, these are all the things that help communities, making sure that they're able to police themselves and have ways in which to take care of crime in their communities. 
but will we see crime if we if we have these things? Right. And so, you know, I'm sitting here in Atlanta right now. And, you know, for your listeners, the people that will know what's going on in Atlanta, mm-hmm. you know, a uh, 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 string of shootings. We've yeah. had we were young kids, a young girl was shot and killed. Um, and now we have the governor bringing in the National Guard for reasons I don't understand and don't know. Mm. Right. You know. But it's, again, this idea is that we're going to over-police you and we're going to criminalize you, and that's how we're going to fix crime. That has never worked, and it won't work. And the idea is that, you know, as Black people are saying, and as, as people are saying, defund the police, we want to defund the police because we know the police doesn't protect us, and that is not the same issue as... Black people in their communities not feeling safe. These are two separate issues. But we still want to defund the police because Black people in their communities feeling safe. That can happen when we fund other things. Yeah. So now you want to over-police us when we've been asking to defund. But we have this (laughs) idea that, you know, because, oh, because we have crime now, we have to now bring in the National Guard. No, these two things don't go hand in hand. Black people in their communities, we also want safety. We also are very upset and and discouraged and mad about the killings of of, of children, of killings of any black body. We're also upset and mad about the police killing us too. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, to to just bring it back to one little thing, Mm -hmm. Kevin is from Atlanta. I don't know if we shared that last week. So uh, got got some... uh, Got got some Atlanta love. Born and raised, got born Crawford Lung Hospital right Woo! there, right in the middle of the city, baby. And we we, we were so excited uh, about the conference this year because it was supposed to be in Atlanta, and then you know going virtual. It was my homecoming. Yeah, I was going to show gonna up be big a, time, show my people. I made it. I made it. <laughs> it's like Talu Kweli said, right? You left the hood, but then you hollered back, you know, and uh, <laughs> that would have been that thing. Um, no, that that's so powerful, Dr. Love. Like, when, And it's interesting because when we start looking at all of the things that find their way to our doorstep in public schools, particularly in schools that serve black and brown children, what we start realizing is that, that, that the society around us has created um, this like this survival context for for our children. And so many of the things that need to be fixed um, function outside of our school buildings, but then they find their way in and then we perpetuate these things. Um, And oftentimes we perpetuate them thinking we're doing the right thing. Um, My favorite section in your book is the one where you talk about the educational survival complex. That, that piece crystallized so many things that not only have I witnessed as a teacher in the Denver public schools over, like I said, the last two decades, but what I experienced as a student attending the Denver Public Schools and what I experienced at almost every single conference I've ever like attended regarding how we better deliver public education. Um, so you have some things to say about this educational survival complex. So I'm going to ask kind of a kind of a multi-layered question. So the first question is, um, what about survival of, of education do you find untenable? And the second question is, how can folks know whether 
their behaviors and their actions are actually feeding this educational survival complex that you write about so articulately? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, you know, I write about the educational survival complex because, you know, I think we're on this phone as, as we talk about our experiences. You know, we're we're three people who survived this thing. We didn't thrive in it. We survived it. We yeah. made it through. Yeah. We made it through. And the fact is we made it through why people made money off our backs. So yep. the yep. surveillance, the, the testing, the curriculum, all these things that say that we are deficient. And we survived it. We didn't, we didn't thrive in school. <laughs> so I got this idea from like, you know, black and brown kids are trying to survive. We're just, we're, not, we're just trying to survive this educational complex. And the reason I call it a complex, you know, similar to the prison industrial complex, is yep. because everybody's making money. Everybody's making money off this thing. Yep. And so it's big business to keep testing in schools, to keep police in schools, the surveillance in schools you know, curriculum that doesn't, we don't see ourselves. That's all a complex. Yeah. These are multiple, multiple institutions, multiple corporations that are deeply invested in telling black and brown people that they're not deserving. Oh yeah. And you name names in this. You, you name the college board, oh. you name uh, McGraw Hill, like you call, you name names. And that's the beautiful so thing about it. <laughs> that's right. right. That's right. You have to name names because otherwise what we end up doing is we have these these ambiguous, you know, conversations mm -hmm. where nobody has to own anything, right? Um, yeah. any, anyway, I got excited about you naming names. Go on. <laughs> but no, but, and then so, you know, what does it look like in the classroom or what does it look like in the school is when everybody knows that teacher that is harmful, but nobody says anything to him or her or they. Mm. Yep. All right, everybody's like, oh, here she goes. She back this year. Yeah, she back. She back this year. <laughs> That's yeah, so know, true. <laughs> you know that those kids are not learning. What it looks like is when you come, you talk to another teacher, you say, you know, so-and-so has just been disruptive in my class. Has has he been like that in your class? No, perfect student. Well, what is going Maybe it's you. <laughs> <laughs> they never want to think that. They, there's always some sort of mystery as to right. why it's at not. I don't know what. Maybe it's the time of day. Is. Maybe it's lunch. Or the other funny know. little like microaggression that I experienced right away was that they're quick to say that a child's positive behavior is because they like you, but not quick mm. to say that maybe their negative yeah. behavior is because they don't like me. And you know, we were talking about this coded language with uh, Jose Wilson. Uh, a while back and and it's like it's like oh well it's just because you're a cool teacher they're just it's just because right. you're a cool teacher and you know i don't know what the deal is i was like okay so let's assume that that's true and by the way everyone on this call is incredibly cool um but <laughs> but can you at least extrapolate that you're not cool if you're having a problem right. like that's not cool how are you doing? i mean and i have a 15 year old daughter and it took about a day and a half for her to get information from her classmates about which classes you want to take and which ones you want to avoid. Yeah. Oh, you're yeah. going to take that class. Oh man, that that teacher. Ooh, you just got to, you know, and so the, the students are often sharing survival strategies with each other and yeah. how they do that. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the one way we perpetuate it because everybody knows or, you know, the, the testing, the teachers say, well, you know, this is what, what's what we got to do. No, it's not what you got to do. We don't have to. We can push back. Yeah. We don't have to. Or the teacher that, you know, 
you go to their go to their file and you re, you just referring kids to the office like this? You just suspending kids like this? Yep. <laughs> Why? What's happening? Yep. Right? Because you know what I try to get my teachers to realize is that you have a part to play in the prison the prison industrial complex. That's right. We we we're, we're in this whether we like it or not. As that's educators. right. So what are we going to do about it? Are we going to are we going to just keep filling up this pipeline? And Dave Stallball, you know, he says we don't have a prison to school pipeline. We have a prison to school nexus. Which means you're already in it. It's not a pipeline. Schools are set up as prisons, so it's not a pipeline. You're already in it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I even had a student who um, she graduated, spent one year uh, in college, and then wrote a wrote a paper to that same effect that yeah. actually there's no pipeline. <laughs> like school, yeah. school and prison are one and the same, and they're they're yeah. becoming increasingly so. Yeah. It's incredible. You know, and that's more part of the industrial, you know, educational survival complex. We just all trying to survive this thing as teachers, as well as students and as parents. That's right. That's right. And I love what you like bring up the parents and like, I think about how this complex, like it plays us all against each other, right? Too. Mm-hmm. So parents, parents get calls from teachers about their kids, right? Parent, kid Teachers make the calls because they're like, oh, we can't teach the lesson because if I don't teach the lesson, I'm not going to hit my numbers. Uh, on my yeah. objective, and I'm not going to get my bonus, and so it becomes this whole thing. Yeah. And then kids go to the uh, the the teacher pre- uh, performance survey, and then they be digging the teachers. The teachers ignore what they say there, <laughs> yep. right? They're, they're like, "Oh, kids can't give their opinions. Kids can give opinions about anything. They're yeah. very good at giving their opinions, but somehow the place they spend most of their time, yeah. they can't give opinions about the thing that they do the most." They're, that's the most uninformed opinion that they have. Well, and, th- and this goes all the way up to the top. Like when, when we, so in Denver, we've got, um, we've got this, uh, this, this leap framework for evaluation. Um, if you're ever struggling with insomnia, um, we'll send you the PDF. It's extremely long and, and dull. Um, but one of the, one of the pieces of our evaluation is student perception surveys. And, you know, you'll hear people at the highest levels say, oh, don't worry about your student perception surveys. They're not that important, <laughs> you know, no. and and you'll hear teachers also kind of badmouth other teachers who have high student perception high. ratings as if as if that isn't a meaningful measure. And so that that type of behavior is um, is institutionalized. Yeah. I guess guess the type of teachers tend to have higher student uh, performance ratings. Always students, always students of color. Always teachers of color. Mm-hmm. You got it. You got it. <laughs> and that's why they say they don't count. Yep. That's why. Yep. Yeah. They can, those don't count. I mean, I'm you not. Know, but, I, that's, but that's yeah, the classic, classic way to show, you know, whiteness is that soon as black folks meet a criteria, oh, that criteria doesn't count. Of course. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. We got so much that we that's have exactly. to unpack in this, man. <laughs> so, Doctor Love, uh, and uh, we we don't want to hold you too long, but we 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 would definitely miss out. Can you talk to us about the relationship in your mind between hip hop and education? Uh, yeah. As because me and Gerardo are two hip hop lovers, you know, we were yeah. raised in the golden age. Uh, and so, you know, we, I think we both believe that there's a 
very clear connection between modern education and hip hop, but we'd love to hear you speak on it. Yeah. So, you know, the one thing, as I, you know, I was talking about from the very first question you all asked me, you know, I grew up a hip hop head. I grew yeah. up, you know, I'm, I'm the youngest of my siblings by a lot. My brother's 14 years older than me. My sister's 10 years older than me. So, you know, I grew up listening to hip hop, probably stuff I shouldn't have been listening to. Yep, right? yep. As a little kid, listening to uh, N.W.A., the Ghetto Boys. Yep. Like, what? So, you know, and it was just, <laughs> but what I learned even as a young kid was that they were telling me things that my teachers were not telling me. They were telling me what was happening to my community. They were telling me why drugs were in my community. They were telling me why gun violence was happening in my community. And and they weren't and they weren't blaming each other. Public Enemy was teaching me about yeah. what was actually happening when no one would be clear to me and have a conversation with me about what I was experiencing. Um, and then Lauren Hill came, and that kind of just blew me away. She was one of the first women that I just saw as extremely powerful in Queen uh, Latina. Yes. And yes. Me, uh. hip hop always been a way to teach black people to teach about historically present and future about the lives and realities of black folks but i also see hip-hop as civics because hip-hop is giving civic lessons about how we respond how we use our voices to respond to oppression how we use our art to respond to oppression and so hip hop is a way that, you know, I say that we are civically engaged because of hip hop. And I don't care what artist, I don't care what artist has the most foul, use the B word, every other record. I bet you they have a song about their mama. Yeah, that's right. They got a song about their community and where that's they right. come from. And so, and they got a song that talks about how hard it was to grow up there. Yeah. Right. And so they're doing this idea of, of telling our stories. And I think telling our stories is one of the most powerful things you can do um, to figure out who you are and your identity in this world. But I also think it's a civic project to be black, to be a person of color in this in this country is a civic project. We are a walking true. Yeah. civic project. We are trying to figure out what it means to be human in a world that constantly dehumanizes you. And hip hop says, no, 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 no. We're going to center ourselves. Yeah. We're going to tell our stories and we're going to push back yeah. and we're going to tell the whole story of what it means to be black. And that doesn't mean it's always public enemy. That doesn't mean it's always Talib Kweli. That doesn't mean it's always uh, Lauren Hill. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm with the Cardi B's. I'm with the Megan's. Yeah, uh -huh. yep. That's right. Our full story of what it means yeah. to be human. And that's not a perfect story. And hip hop gives us a, a space to be human, to be, to you know, what I love to say is that I can listen to, Lauren Hill, Nas, Cardi B, Megan, and Erica Badu in all one day. Yep. That's yep. what it means to be human. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know. Go through and, all those emotions. Yep. All and as, as, as people who grew up with hip-hop, I mean, it, it's it's got to burn you um, when people are like, well, I like good hip-hop. I like, oh, I like, oh, I, like <laughs> I like, I mean, I mean, uh, um, I like conscious hip-hop. You know, conscious like, like conscious rappers right. that talk about real issues. I'm sorry when when Meek Mill talks about swiping victory from the from the jaws of defeat. When he talks about his football mm -hmm. being popped by a by a hypodermic needle on the street, like I'm sorry, that's, that's, that's conscious. conscious that's real that's talk. Conscious. You know, 
And and the thing that I've always loved about hip hop so much is that it's uncompromising. That the story is going to be the story. You pick up the mic, you tell your story, and re and no matter what story is being told, there's something to learn from it, and it's so powerful. Um, you you've made just as a follow up to Kevin's question, you've actually made hip hop a concrete uh, sort of in, into a concrete relationship with civic education. Can you talk a little bit about that project? Yeah, so I created this thing called uh, Get Free Hip Hop Civics, which was truly about um, trying to make the argument that, you know, Black folks, we do civics. We taught this country what it means to be a democracy, what it means to say social justice. That's us. But what I wanted to argue was that hip hop is civics because in every city, there is a beat, there is a sound, there is a language, there is a literacy practice that young kids do. So I, what I mean by that is you take like, you take some place like New York. Okay, you got New yep. York hip hop. Yep. And then yep. you got Southern hip hop, totally different. Yep. And then with Southern hip hop, you have um, subgroups like coming, yep. out of, coming out of New Orleans. Yep, yep. New Orleans is different from Atlanta. It's different yep. from Atlanta. It's all <laughs> and, and you wouldn't notice it unless you really study it. Right. The <laughs> average person would notice it. Yes, it's, it's a queer gender bending artist called Big Frida coming out of New Orleans. Love Big Frida. Oh. Right? Love Big Frida. And so what happens is that if you look at hip hop in every city, they tell a different story. They tell what's going on in the ground. They tell the language. They tell what's happening. And I argue that through hip hop, we can understand youth locally. So we keep telling youth, you know, you got to have a global perspective. Yeah, but I got to have an everyday perspective of my community first. Yeah. And nobody tells the history and what's happening in your city like hip hop. There's slang and language that they use upstate in New York that they're not going to use down south. That's right. And so what would happen if we saw, if we take what we're learning from different cities as in hip hop and take that and make a civic curriculum around it. And so that's what I did. I went around interviewing artists. I went around interviewing activists, got their stories and then made their stories and turned them into curriculum. And so they argue that hip hop is hyper-local and our civics should be hyper-local. We should be teaching students about what they're, what's happening to them in their community, in their city, before we have this global perspective. I didn't know what's going on in my hood. That's right. And hip hop does that. Yeah. And it's a great curriculum. I've sampled um, a bunch of sampled. Ha! See what I did there. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've sampled a lot of it, and you know that that curriculum is so. It's it, it just it makes it so it makes me so excited to get back um, to teaching uh, whatever that looks like. Oh, that's dope. Thank you. So yeah, Doctor Love. Um, I have two more questions. One's going to be quick, and one might be you, you could expand <laughs> on it. But the first one, do you think? Can, can you be a teacher today and, and uh, can you be a teacher and not have a, at least an appreciation, if not a love for hip hop hmm. and connect to your students? Oh. Do you think that's a requirement? Is that, is that something we should be asking when we're getting interviews is like, uh, do you love hip hop? <laughs> you love hip hop. <laughs> no, I would say no. You don't have to have an appreciation for hip hop, but you do have to have an appreciation for black art. Hmm. And I think um, that should be the requirement. There we go. All right. I yeah. love that. I love that. Love that. Um, and then, so the, I, I guess this will be the, our final question. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been so amazing. Um, but being with with a true hip hop head, we'd be, we, 
we would miss out if we didn't ask you, who are your top five? <laughs> <laughs> she knew it was coming. She knew it was coming. <laughs> we'll have to rank them. You just tell us. You, you can rank them if you want, but who are your top five? We got to know. So I'm a big – so my daughter is named Lauren. Oh, okay. Yes. That says I'm a lot. Lauren, yeah. yep. So I'm a Lauren Hill fanatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a lover of Rhapsody. Oh, yeah. Yes. Big shout out to No Name. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, one of my favorite rappers right now is Beyonce. I think you might yeah. be. Yeah. Bars than your favorite rapper right Bar. now. That's it. That's um, it. You know, it, it's hard if you don't go underground. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, because. Many of your favorite male rappers will disappoint you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Disappoint you. Um, so I would say so true. I was a huge Jay-Z fan. I was a huge, huge Nas fan. Yeah. Um, but you know, they just, they, oh, and that's a whole nother conversation. Whole nother conversation. Oh, yeah, so it really I, is. Busta. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, oh, oh my God. You know, so I had to bring a, a brother in the mix. <laughs> you know, he's not even a rapper, but I like his music so much. Is Anderson Pack? Oh, oh yeah, that's good stuff. Oh, I love what he's doing. Yeah, I love what, as, as a musician, I, I love what he's doing. I love how he's just as as a lyricist. I love it. As a lyricist, as a lyricist. As a, I'm like, oh, yo, man. with a lot of y'all rappers and sing. <laughs> uh huh. He can't. He got it all. Like, got it all. Man, you know no, it's funny because amazing. We listen to talk a lot, and my son is always like, "Is that Kendrick?" I'm like, "No, no, no, no." So yeah, and then I, you know, I, I would say at the end of the day, you know, I'm a big Andre 3000 fan. Yeah, I love Dre. Love Dre. Yeah. You know, another album out. I'm not in that. You know, no, he got enough body of work. Yeah, that he's in my five regardless. Got another art piece. <laughs> That's it. Right. Oh, that is a that is a great list. That is a great we list. We love it. We love it. That's <laughs> I mean, and expect nothing less. That was incredible. Um Dr. Bethina Love, this this has just been such a fun conversation. <laughs> like that like I'm so, I've been smiling so hard that like my face hurts. <laughs> I'm gonna need a little bit of a break. Yeah. No, I'm um, the same way. <laughs> <laughs> um, what we want to do um, is first of all just thank you for giving us your time and being so generous with your time on our little tiny shoestring podcast that you know we, we just decided to try to put up. And um, you know, thank you for being a part of this. It's so amazing, and our listeners are going to be thrilled to hear what you have to say. Um, Will, do you want to talk about some of the projects that you're working on? Some of the things that maybe folks um, could find just intellectually stimulating and powerful and meaningful um, that you're excited about, some work that you're excited about, we can uh, we can put it out there? Yeah, I just want to say, you know, yesterday we launched the Abolitionist Teaching Network. Yes. Um, and what this network really wants to do is... Yes, dynamic programming, programming that is responsive of the times and where we are, of course. But our real course of action is having what we call activists in residence. And so what will happen is that a school district or a community group or a group of parents 
can say that we want someone who's been trained in abolitionist teaching. We want someone who has been trained in direct action and community organizing to work with our school to dismantle. Wow. So wow, we, wow, will, wow. We, have, we got one goal, and that's really simple, is to empower teachers to disrupt. And so that is the Abolitionist Teacher Network. So we, um, wow. we launched yesterday. And it was a beautiful, wonderful launch. We raised about $20,000 in one day, um, five, six to 7,000 new um, social media followers. And we're Amazing. just excited to think about, you know, again, we're not trying to reform. We're not trying to figure out new ways. We're trying to think about how we build a network full of abolitionists who are trying to um, dismantle this educational survival complex. Brilliant. Brilliant. And as it says, and as it says on the site, abolitionist teaching is not a teaching approach. It is a way of life. Um, life. And you've got um, some upcoming (laughs) activities happening, something on July 13th, right? Um, July 13th, we have a big kickoff. That's our big kickoff, just saying welcome and thank you. You meet board members, you hear our mission, what we're trying to do. And then we have two programs coming up. One that is a healing workshop for Black I'm brown and indigenous um, educators of color. So just it's only for educators of color. Beautiful. And then at the same right. time, we have another workshop for white educators about how to become a co-conspirator. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to do that work of saying, you know, black and brown folks, we got to be well. We got to heal ourselves. And yep. white folks, we got to have y'all step up. Yeah. Yep. Uh, different work. Different, different work. work. Different work. Different yep. work. And so we need different spaces. Y'all don't need to be in our space. We don't need to be in your space. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's and right. then we also We're have two programs coming out very soon that will be about Black Boy Joy and Black mm-hmm. Boy Healing. And then oh, we have another program um, around Black girls. And when we say yes. Black girls and Black boys, we are being as inclusive as possible. Um, so we're not just defining Black boys and Black girls in the tradition of, you know, yep. That we're trying to be an exclusive, and we mean trans boys, and we mean trans girls, and all of that good stuff. So look for those two programs coming out in the next week. That's beautiful. And if in you know go go to the website abolitionisteachingnetwork.org, and what you're going to find is a ton of great stuff. You're going to find uh, fellowships, uh, access to community organizers, access to sites, uh, radical self care resources for agitators. It's just some really amazing stuff. Um, good stuff. Oh, thank you. And Dr. Love, how can people enjoy um, your social media thoughts? Yeah, so you can follow me on Love Soul Power. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, and then abolitionistteachernetwork.org, like you said. And then our Twitter handle and our Instagram handle is ATN underscore 1863. And 1863 is when Harriet Tubman led uh, one of the biggest raids on the Columbia River and freed over 800 slaves. Yes. And so take that energy uh, from the work that she did. Yeah, that's amazing. So uh, give Dr. Bettina Love a, a follow as well as other members of the Abolitionist Teaching Network who are doing this really, really incredible work. Dr. Love, thank you for being here with us today. And oh, just you. Hey, you two are really two dope teachers. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, thank you oh, so man, much. Thank you. It means a lot coming from you. It really does. Like, it really does. All right. So we do one thing to kind of like ring out the show. Um, we, uh, I'll usually ramble a little bit. And then um, we will all attend. This is harder to do on on uh, on a virtual platform, but we'll all try to yeah, say it is. Yeah, we'll all try to say stay dope together, but we can we can let it just be whatever it is. So I talk a little bit and then we all say stay dope. Does that sound good? Okay. 
All right. So, uh, folks, thank you for joining us for this amazing uh, interview for the Revolution Summer Mixtape 2020 with Dr. Bettina Love, author of We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. For our amazing guest, Dr. Bettina Love, for Kevin Bernard Adams, my name is Gerardo Munoz, and we want to invite you in a heat wave, in a pandemic, in the, in the fight for our lives, to stay joyful and to always stay dope. Stay dope. Stay dope.